card. Bullets, shells and shrapnel, and a hellhound on my track. When I made it to my home place, I found triumph of the Shining city stood a fortress on a hill. All right, guys. Well, listeners, this is our last episode of twenty eighteen. I wish I could say that 2018 was a good year. Um, I'm trying to find the positive in what has really been a rough year for American foreign policy, for the fight against militarism. Uh, I'm hoping that with some of the recent Trump announcements on troop withdrawals in Syria and partial troop withdrawals in Afghanistan, I'm, I'm hoping that that's the silver lining in 2018. And that maybe we're going to move on to something different, uh, hopefully better, but at least different. Uh, you never really know in the Trump era. So, you know, me and Harry are going to riff on that uh, later on today and uh, cover what has been a, well, shitstorm of the last two weeks since our last episode was recorded. And uh, that includes the madness in Syria and Afghanistan, turmoil in the Trump administration, more war between Israel and Syria, undeclared war, mind you, uh, and the death of a very controversial president. So, well, Henry, uh, I'll give you an opportunity, of course, to tell us uh, anything you were thinking about the year, but definitely, you know, start us off with uh, Papa Bush and his legacy. Yeah, the year has been a, uh, has been a supremely shitty one. Um, I'm the the things that I'm most hopeful for in the new year are some kind of decent change to the situation in Yemen. Uh, there are UN monitors on the ground now, um, so you know that's that's one thing that we could hope out for that it will. It, it's already plenty ugly. It doesn't need to get any uglier for them to say it. Uh, it should be done, but that is one area that I I, I do have some hope on. Um, as far as George H W Bush. Um, you know, I grew up with him being as a, as a hero of some kind. I remember having a Gulf War soldier come to my class as a kindergartner. Um, but in reality, uh, you know, the, the man has participated in one way or another in most of the horrible things that have happened in the last 70 years. Um, he was CIA director. Um, I'm trying to remember what the, what the specific period was. But anyways... N- Normal neoconservative CIA director. I know he, he dealt with the rank contra. I just couldn't remember if it was when he was vice president or if he was director. Yeah, I know. So he, yeah, so he's he's CIA uh, director, I, I believe, under Ford. Um, and uh, Kissinger, of course, is Secretary of State at that point. So there's all the coups, uh, plural, that yeah. um, Kissinger is complicit in in uh, in the mid seventies in South America, as well as his looking the other way in East Timor when the Indonesian army slaughters thousands, if not 
tens of thousands of uh, East Timor E's uh, for, I'm sorry, people in East Timor, I, I don't know what your plural is, but, uh, but, but I have sympathy for you. And then of course the uh, slaughters in Bangladesh during the Pakistani civil war, which uh, eventually creates the state of Bangladesh. Yeah. And then, and then you're right, or Iran Contra, and I don't, I don't mean to jump in and steal your thunder. He's vice president for Iran Contra. Uh, it's unclear because we never saw the full investigation, uh, which is typical of executive branch misconduct. But he is vice president. We don't know how complicit he was in the scandal. But what we do know is that George H.W. Bush was a very active foreign policy expert uh, throughout his career. I mean, he's one of the most qualified in the traditional sense, man ever to be president, ever to be vice president. It is very difficult for this analyst to believe that he was completely in the dark about such a transformational and really important secret program. Okay. Especially with his background as a spook in the CIA. So I, I find it hard to believe, but what we do know for sure then is that in 1989, in January of 1989, when he takes the helm of the presidency to complete what some have called Reagan's third term, right? Because he's continuing a lot of Reagan policies. We do know that he pardons just about everybody involved in Iran-Contra right away. And it is hard not to wonder if those pardons weren't just about loyalty, but were also about making sure none of those people under indictment or none of those people under investigation uh, open their mouth about his involvement in Iran-Contra, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I realized halfway through when you were talking that it was it was the pardons that I was I was I was blanking on. And, you know, it, it's it's pretty typical of, you know, the vice president president relationship when that happens in terms of doing those things out of uh, out of loyalty, but but to to see that many and the way in doing it the way he did, how can you say he wasn't involved in some way? I mean, it just and 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 we may as things get declassified, as things get older and older, we may learn more and more. So, let's not forget like how big of a deal Iran Contra was. You know, I realize it's like 1986 or so that this goes down um, midway through the second Reagan term, but. It blows my mind to this day that Iran-Contra is not held up as perhaps the greatest scandal in American foreign policy history, uh, at least in the 20th century. And the fact that Reagan and Bush were never held to any serious account and that Bill Clinton was, you know, impeached and nearly removed from office for lying about a blowjob in the Oval Office. Okay, I don't condone Clinton's behavior, nor do I condone lying under oath. Okay, so I don't mean to make it like partisan. I like Democrats. I hate Republicans. Okay, the reality is there was no accounting for Iran Contra. And like, let's just review, like, let me give the 45 second important stuff on Iran Contra. Uh, okay. Congress passes a law that says we're not allowed to be militarily involved or to sell weapons to the Contra militias in South America, in Central America. Why does Congress do that? Why do they pass the Boland Amendment? They pass that Boland Amendment because the Contras are murdering civilians. They are acting as death squads. Okay, well, Reagan would really, really like to give them money. He can't do it legally. 
So what else would Reagan really like? Reagan would really, really like if Hezbollah would give back the hostages, the American hostages they're holding. Well, Hezbollah doesn't act alone. Hezbollah does what their daddy Iran tells them to do. And their daddy Iran is involved in a war with Saddam Hussein in Iraq, and they're losing that war. And the United States is allied with Iraq. But just for a moment, we're willing to shit on our Iraqi allies, and what we'll do is sell missiles and other major weapons to the Iranians. Now we've got all this cash flow. We've got this windfall of money. Whatever are we to do to it? Well, here's what we're going to do with it. We're going to give it to the Contras, but we can't do that legally, so we'll do it in secret. And who's a great person to launder money for you if you're doing it in secret? You guessed it, Israel. So Israel brokers the deal as a middleman, launders the money, gets it to the Contras, and the Contras go on another killing spree, and all of it is hidden from Congress and the public. That's Iran-Contra in about 90 seconds, okay, longer than I wanted it to be. The fact that that is not the great scandal of the 20th century is amazing. What it tells me is Republicans can get away with anything. But if a Democrat, if a liberal steps out of line in any way, you can expect an impeachment. Yeah, it's uh, – I was watching people yesterday argue on Twitter about the un, uh, unpixelated faces of the special forces guys that were on the video president Trump shared. And it, 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 it very few people were able to take that measured look at it to say that this is, this is bad, no matter who's on what side of it. But most everybody was, you're talking about our president and do they not see how that's just a formula for, for the status quo? I, yeah, I totally agree. You're talking about Trump's, you know, um, finally, President Trump visits, uh, it was Iraq, correct? I mean, he visits yeah. troops in Iraq he, at Al-Assad Air yeah. Base. Um, takes a picture with some Navy SEALs, right? Um, uh, yes, I believe so, in, in full yeah. kit. Yeah. Right, yeah, identities um, and such. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, this is a big deal. Um, but, you know, again, like, just because I think comparisons are valuable, like, the Twitter sphere is losing its mind over this, and I'm not saying it's not a huge deal. I'm not saying it's not a big deal. But again, like George H.W. Bush gets a pass for Iran-Contra, which I just described. Like everything I said was maybe it was simplified, but it was accurate. That is like horrifying. And yet, you know, how many minutes were dedicated during the hagiography that the media did for five straight days, at least, on George H.W. Bush, how many minutes were dedicated to, like, let's look back at Iran-Contra, you know? Let's open that Pandora's box up and air our American dirty laundry. No, they don't want to do that. And why don't they want to do that? Because there is something else that's true about George H.W. Bush. And this will upset some listeners. It's just my opinion, though. He's a pretty polite guy, you know? He practices politics imperfectly, but certainly a lot better than Donald Trump. Certainly a lot better than the way the tribal politics operate today. That doesn't make him a hero. Okay. Uh, but I think this is what's really dangerous about the hagiography of Bush. In the world of Trump, in the world of Trump versus Hillary and like liberals versus conservatives with like pitchforks and axes and fucking torches the way it is now, Everything in the past looks wonderful now. So even George W. Bush, 
Bush Jr. is sort of looked at positively, even though he was a monster, even though he is responsible, he's a mass murderer. Okay. Um, and so then back it up a little further and George H.W. Bush, who is much more polite, much more sensible, even for all his flaws than his son was, he starts to look like the greatest one-term president in history. And, and I, I think that while I do have some nice things to say about George H.W. Bush, which I'll, I'll get into because I think there are a couple of things he did fairly well, it, it, we're letting him off the hook. We are. We're letting him off the hook for Iran-Contra and like five other things. Okay, Panama, we could talk about that. Um, the highway of death uh, when he orders airstrikes on retreating really defenseless Iraqi soldiers who are mostly conscripts and kills maybe tens of thousands, okay, unnecessarily. There, look, there are war crimes in the past. There are horrifying scandals like Iran-Contra and the media, whether it was Fox or MSNBC, was intent on building this guy up uh, to a level he didn't deserve. And I, and I swear, Henry, I don't know what you think about this. At least on the left, like the left-wing media or the, le- the mainstream left media, I feel like everything they do is an opportunity to bash Trump. And the whole George H.W. Bush thing, like this subtext to me, throughout that whole week of the funeral and, and, and the memorial and stuff, the subtext was George H.W. Bush is amazing, especially when you look at Trump and how bad he is. Isn't he the anti-Trump? He's the anti-Trump. He's the good Republican, you know? And like, I feel like part of the reason he was so glorified was almost as a subtle attack on the politics of today and a subtle attack on the persona of Donald Trump. And while I'm not necessarily... Uh, above criticizing my commander in chief in constructive ways, I, I don't think that that is how we should judge figures in our past. No, no, not at all. And uh, I, uh, yeah, the only, the only, uh, aside from a assortment of small left uh, leftist type outlets, the only bigger places that I saw that actively covered any truth about him was. Um, Democracy Now, and the Jimmy Dore Show, neither of which are are wide reaching by by any stretch of the imagination. But I I was really grateful for those because it it you know I I was a little kid back then. You know, you and I were kids, but the, we can we learn about kind of the attitudes that people have taken. And you're absolutely right that it's that MSNBC and people like Rachel Maddow that they don't ever share news these days that doesn't have a we hate Trump slant. And it, it, it takes away from their credibility. You and I have talked about this a few times that when we started this podcast, or maybe we'll say in the beginning of 2017, Rachel Maddow was considered a somewhat respectable journalist. And then Russiagate began, and she didn't talk about Yemen. She didn't talk about Afghanistan. She didn't talk about Syria. She didn't talk about anything. And I'm not just picking on her, but I think that that's really demonstrative of, of the symptoms of this. Uh, we can't, you know, what what happens when MSNBC turns into such a shill news organization that it mirrors uh, Fox News on 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 the left side, um, and and what do ordinary people do then when they're trying to make any kind of sense of it, and how do we how do we dial back from it, Danny? I I don't fucking know. Yeah, I'm honestly I'm lost. I mean, there there are points of no return. There are cliffs that we've passed and jumped off of, and I'm not sure how you put Humpty Dumpty back together again, or how you get uh, the the pieces back in the box, you know. Um, 
we're jumping around a little bit. I, I think it's valuable to stay on a point and, and take it to fruition when the opportunity arises. But Rachel Maddow is, is, is someone that I'm personally disappointed in. When I first started writing um, my book and my first columns, it was, and I'm almost embarrassed to say this now, it was a dream of mine to be a guest on the Rachel Maddow show. Maybe that was always a pipe dream because I'm not quite mainstream enough anyway. But that was like the goal. I, I used to say to myself, like someday Rachel Maddow is going to interview me about my writing and that's when I'll know I made it. And the reason I wanted to go on her show was because I did consider her a respectable journalist. She's very smart. I mean, there's no taking that oh, away from oh her. Oh, God, I mean, yes. Yeah, she's very she's, intelligent. She's brilliant. I mean, yeah. a woman in Oxford and all that, Rose Scholar. But she wrote a book called Drift maybe eight years back. That was brilliant. It's a book about how American foreign policy has come on board and become increasingly militaristic. And it, it really follows from Vietnam up to the war on terror. And it's a pretty good study in American militarism. This is a woman who chose to write her first book on foreign policy, which is rare among media pundits. And so I had this enormous level of respect for her. I thought Drift was a great book. I still think so. I still recommend our readers go back and take a look. But how did that woman become the woman who this week, this Christmas week, was criticizing Donald Trump for pulling out of Syria and Afghanistan? How is the woman who wrote a book about U.S. militarism being unmoored, drifting, according to the title, in negative directions, how did that woman become a hawk on Syria? A, a dubiously legal adventure with no possible positive outcome for the United States. The fact that she is defending U.S. military presence in Syria takes away all credibility. I don't think there's anything she could do, Henry, to regain my respect, at least on the level that I had it for her in, say, 2015. I, I just don't know that she could. Between Russiagate, Yemen, and now the whole, you know, smashing Trump because he's pulling out of Syria and Afghanistan. And, and, you know, she, she sounds like goddamn Mattis. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I wrote that article this past week for Tom Dispatch called The World According to the Adults in the Room. And, like, somehow the left developed a love affair with McMaster, Mattis, and Kelly, the triumvirate of generals retired, or active in the case of McMaster, who ran the Trump foreign policy. And it's like all these guys gave us was two more years of war. That's it, you know? I mean, like, that's all we got from them. And, and for someone like Rachel Maddow to speak essentially in the voice of those three generals, it, it's, it's, it's horrifying. I mean, it, it, it really is. And, um, yeah, I've lost a lot of respect for her. I've lost a lot of respect for MSNBC and for the mainstream interventionist left more generally. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. I, I I had a lot of respect for her, and yeah, it's 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 never coming back. You know the the, the you you can't you can't look at the her past work and then look at the last two years and have any chance of saying no. Nope, sorry, you're just you're you're full of shit. So, well, uh, Danny, what do you say we uh, talk about Niger for a minute? I'm always happy to talk about Africa, the forgotten continent. So I want to I want to take a few minutes and return to Niger and the ambush that took four American lives along with I want to say around uh, 
eight or nine Nigerians as well. I've covered elements of this story over the last year, and in a minute I'll elaborate on why I've featured it so much. But, but first, let's cover the basics on what happened and a couple recent updates, including one involving newly departed former Secretary of Defense James Mattis. So in October of 2017, a... Hold on, my notes moved on me. Okay. In October of 2017, a 12-man U.S. Army Special Forces Green Beret team and 30 Nigerian troops were ambushed just outside the village of Tongo Tongo in Niger. They were ambushed by a large force of insurgents believed to be affiliated with a branch of ISIS in that region, known as ISIS in the Greater Sahara. Their original mission was to visit a Niger army checkpoint and conduct a KLE, a key leader engagement with the checkpoint commander. Why the army needs a three word acronym for the word meeting is fucking beyond me. But anyway, riding along with them was a civilian contractor that was able to track cell phone signals in that area. And he was trying to help them find a man named Dudun Shafu, a leader in ISIS in the greater Sahara. Now, originally, their higher command didn't know that they, that was what they had chosen to do, that they, these men actually wanted to find or kill Shafu. Their paperwork submitted to their command before leaving the camp didn't reflect this, which means that the usual steps their chain of command might have insisted on before going on a mission like that, like using armored vehicles or wearing body armor, weren't insisted upon. So they locate Shafu by his cell phone signal and tell higher command, and their command orders them to back up an airborne special forces team that is inbound to take this guy out with the team I'm talking about being the backup. A time later, the airborne team is canceled due to weather restrictions, and only the 12 Americans, the 12 Green Berets, and their 30 Nigerian counterparts are sent after Shafu, who they believed was at a camp close to Tongo Tongo near the Mali border. The commander of the team... Captain Perazzini pushes back against his orders. He tells his command that his men are too tired and they've been out too many hours and they also don't have the right equipment to conduct the raid either, the body armor and armor vehicles that I mentioned. His chain of command tells him to do it anyway, and they do. All they find when they go to where the location they track Shafu to is an abandoned camp and no Shafu. So they start heading back to their camp and they stop in the village of Tongo Tongo to let their Nigerian counterparts get water. A very short distance from the village, the team is ambushed by a huge enemy force. Now, I've linked in the show notes to a few good pieces uh, on this story that tell the full narrative how it went down. But for now, Danny, what I'd like you and I to focus on is the results of the investigation that the chain of command conducted. So, the command found serious deficiencies in several places in the team's preparation. First, the training schedule of the Green Berets themselves. They had not conducted training as a complete team before they deployed, a requirement. Most U.S. military units conduct training as a full unit prior to any deployment. Not always, but usually. It's important for the skills gained, but it's even more important for the team members to learn about each other and work side by side in a, a combat stress type setting. Within the 12 Green Berets, several had been deployed to this exact same location already and knew they would be returning there on the next deployment. So that gave them 
a shot at a bit of specialized experience and knowledge most soldiers would never receive getting deployed to Africa or other places. But without more time and training for team cohesion, teams can perform poorly. Also, the Nigerians that accompanied the Green Berets had never trained with the team before the day of the mission. I'm going to say that again. These Green Berets had never trained with this particular group of Nigerian soldiers before the day of the mission. The Green Berets had also only been in Niger for a short time, a matter of weeks before the ambush happened. The report referenced mistakes in their mission paperwork, noting that someone clearly used cut and paste to fill in some of the forms, leaving noticeable errors in their mission plan. This is a pretty common problem in the army, as when soldiers go out on mission every day, it becomes routine and often mistakes become secondhand, especially if the leaders believe that the information in the forms isn't going to change. So who got punished? Who actually got their ass kicked over this? Originally, the punishment was meant to fall on the team leader, Captain Perazzini, and his second-in-command, a master sergeant. Both were faulted for insufficient training with their Nigerian counterparts, not doing rehearsals before leaving on the mission, those uncompleted team requirements when they were still stateside that I mentioned, and not being clear about their intended mission when they left their camp. Both of those men received a letter of reprimand. An assortment of other leaders received letters of reprimand for other small failings, other training requirements and such. But the report outlined zero punishments for the senior commanders who ordered the mission and forced Captain Perazzini to continue on despite his objections that his team was too fatigued and lacked the proper equipment. Then along comes Mattis. Yes, newly former Defense Secretary James Mattis puts the brakes on these letters of reprimand for Captain Perazzini. He took a stance that the leaders who ordered the mission and forced the captain to continue on despite his pushback should have been held responsible for their part of the mission's failings. Now, given uh, Secretary Mattis' quick departure, uh, it's unclear at this point if any of this will change. So it's something that we're going to have to kind of wait and see on. Now, why did I spend so much time on this story? I've covered it a bunch of times on the podcast. Why did I return to it time and again for headlines? Because the story of these men, their deaths, and leaders scurrying back to their corners, it is part and parcel big army bullshit. There's a piece I'll reference in the show notes by Tom and Thomas Gibbons Neff at the New York Times, who's a, uh, a, a Marine Iraq veteran. And he did a really great job of breaking down everything that's happened so far. He makes perfectly clear that if Mattis had not stepped in, the only punishment would have been given to the subordinates. And that story could be repeated in many places with many different situations. And the underlings, if they feel they've been wrong somehow, or especially if senior leaders cover for other senior leaders, they have little or no recourse. This is just one of the many reasons that Danny and I advocate for elements of the military justice system to become civilian controlled. These men are dead because their leaders chose mission over their troops, over the commander on the ground's assessment. You'll hear that, that in the news a lot. It's a, it's a, it's kind of a, it becomes kind of a throwaway phrase, but it's very important when it comes to investigations like this. What did the commander on the ground see? The Army and DOD will gladly pretend that this operation was hinged on training. Sending an unprepared, horribly fatigued group of soldiers into a 
active, or I guess they didn't know at the time, uh, a somewhat active combat zone without air support. This is not a problem for the army. And think about this. If these soldiers hadn't died or been wounded, would we have heard a peep about this mission? Probably not. And generally, leaders presume, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this, Danny, most leaders presume that nothing is going to happen. It's possible that some, if not most leaders here, assumed it might be just a cakewalk. And I can tell you right now that assumption kills troops. As a leader, you need to prepare as though today is the day you're going to die. So, Danny, I'd like to know what you think about, you know, the, the leaders and, and, you know, the, and, and Mattis getting involved. Because even, even if I agree with the sentiment of it, it's... Well, it is, this is so typical. Scapegoating a captain, scapegoating a master sergeant, right? Or even lower command at certain points. I mean, nobody above the rank of lieutenant colonel gets in trouble. That's like the army rule, okay? It, it, the worst thing that happens to you if, you know, you know, if you launder money or fuck a subordinate while you're married, like, the worst thing that happens to you as a general officer is you just, like, reti retire quiet. Right. And instead, when something goes wrong, we scapegoat lower level leaders. We did it with Abu Ghraib. We did it with Cop Keating. And we see it again here in Niger. As always, I want to zoom out. I want to zoom out and show us where the real responsibility for this mission lies. It lies with the undeclared wars that AFRICOM is waging across that continent. We have soldiers in countries people in America cannot pronounce. We have soldiers in countries actively in danger in many cases in conflicts that Congress has never approved, voted on, or had any meaningful oversight of. That was the failure. The failure was being in Niger in the first place without a clear mission statement. From that broader failure, we can continue to drill down and find the other failures. It ends with overly aggressive senior commanders forcing an on-the-ground commander to go against his better instincts and conduct a mission without the proper equipment, without the proper rest, and without the proper air support, drone support, or, or the usual the usual enablers that are in place for a basic infantry patrol in Afghanistan, let alone a special forces mission in a distant area of Niger, excuse me. You know, this is horrifying. And the fact that Mattis had to get involved, and, and I applaud Mattis for pausing, at least hitting the pause button or hitting the brakes on those letters of reprimand. But the fact that it had to be the secretary of defense, it tells us that something's broken in big army. Something's broken in the way the army investigates failure, the way that army investigates disaster. And you're right. We would have never heard about this if it went well or if it just went okay, if nothing had happened, if there had been no ambush. And you know what would have happened? They would have continued this kind of irresponsible behavior, this irresponsible overreach time and again until this eventually did happen. The tragedy is that it takes a tragedy to stop a future tragedy. No one is forward-thinking enough to ask the key questions, like, 
Is Niger's stability a vital American strategic interest? Is it so much of a vital American strategic interest that we're willing to put American soldiers' lives at risk? And if we think it is, isn't it then important enough to go to Congress and debate it publicly? Shouldn't the people's representatives have a voice in whether or not American troops fight, engage in combat, engage in raids, kill and die in an obscure African country that had no connection to 9-11? Well, I think so. And because I think so, and Henry, because you think so, that makes us outliers. We're considered cranks, complainers. We are not respectable foreign policy analysts, right? We're not sober strategists because we ask these hard questions, because we have the gall, the audacity to think maybe the people's representatives should be involved. Maybe general officers should have to justify putting soldiers in combat in a place as obscure and as far from American national security as Niger. And I, I, so I think that's the bigger story. This is a leadership failure that begins at lower levels. It runs through the cast of colonels, and then it runs through the general officers, but it ultimately ends with the president. It ends with the secretary of defense and the executive branch that has decided to unilaterally wage war without congressional approval, with little to no oversight. This attack in Niger will not be the last time Americans die on the continent of Africa. It will not be the last time that American soldiers needlessly die on the continent of Africa without proper oversight or without any legal justification for fighting in the first place. This is the problem of imperial foreign policy. This is the problem with hegemonic foreign policy, with the notion that America has not only the right but the um, – requirement to police the world. And, and so that's the, the last thing I have to say about Niger. And of course, there I go ranting again. But this, this is, Niger is a microcosm of the problems with American foreign policy more generally. Uh, um, <clears throat> I guess I, I in, in, writing, in writing through this, this, this story, I kept thinking about ordinary soldiers, you know, guys, you know, guys like guys like you and I, you know, we, we, uh, just repeating the concept of this hundreds of thousands of times over, um, over the length of these conflicts and the, the throwing life away. It just, it, it, it enrages me to a level I can't describe. And, I I guess I I, I believed <laughs> I I told myself that that people people serving in the military and the themes of the military itself were much more noble than they were and but this um I it it it, it mortifies me that we have to continue to learn these kind of lessons Danny yeah it's not over um. It's not over. The next thing we're going to talk about is uh, Trump's, I think, um, pretty cogent uh, decision to pull troops out of Syria and then uh, slowly out of Afghanistan. Um, but even if President Trump is sincere in his desire to remove us from some of the worst quagmires in the greater Middle East, 
even if he doesn't change his mind, which he is so often apt to do, that will not end the other forgotten theaters of the ongoing professional terror wars like Niger, like Yemen, like Somalia, like Libya, like, geez, I could go on and on. Okay, That isn't going to end. The foreign policy consensus on maintaining U.S. special forces advisors and air power in countless countries, that is not even on the agenda of any serious political figure to get us out of, except maybe Bernie Sanders and Rand Paul. Okay, I mean, that's not changing. So you're right. This is not the last time we're going to lose troops in Africa. This is not the last time we're going to lose troops. Um, in unnecessary missions that shouldn't have been authorized, that we shouldn't have been in in the first place. And and that's the tragedy, you know. Um, even if Trump is genuine in his belief that it's time to get out of the greater Middle East, at least when it comes to conventional soldiers, at least when it comes to large, more than a thousand man ground force, you know, uh, missions. Even if he does that, no one's talking about Nigeria except us, except a few other podcasters, except for a few writers for mainstream outlets who happen to be, you guessed it, veterans like us. Because veterans, thoughtful veterans, can't forget a story like Niger. And I think that's why you've brought it up so many times, Henry. A real vet who understands and has been through some version of that can't forget something like Niger because we know that the team on the ground will never forget those four names. And let's remember there were Nigerians killed as well. Okay. So like, let's not forget that. But those special forces men on that team, the eight surviving members of that team, for them, this battle is never closed. This story is never over. I, as hard as it, as it is sometimes for me to go through this stuff, I'm glad that, that we've worked to tell their story and, and to understand that it is, it is a very common story. We don't hear about it, but it's very common. Absolutely. It really is. It's, it's uh, staggering how common it is. So let's just deal with the elephant in the proverbial room since this is a podcast and we're in two separate rooms, 3,000 miles apart. Um, wow. Wow. President Trump <laughs> bomb the shit out of ISIS Trump waterboarding and worse bring back torture Trump Phil Guantanamo with a bunch of bad dudes Trump maybe start a nuclear war with North Korea Trump announces the week before Christmas that he is pulling US troops about 2000 by some counts 4000 by others out of Syria almost immediately and that he's dropping the troop count in half in Afghanistan. This is a big deal. Wow. I mean, I I was flabbergasted and maybe the listeners aren't surprised to hear that I was pleased. If you know me at all, and if you read any of my admittedly pretty repetitive pieces, I've been calling for withdrawal from Syria, referring to Syria as the Syria trap, 
referring to Afghanistan as the unwinnable war and, and saying we need to cut losses and go. So I, I'm pleased. To tell the story, I think we have to be holistic and bring Mattis into the picture and the other, quote, adults in the room who used to populate his administration, meaning guys like Rex Tillerson and then the triumvirate of generals, John Kelly, H.R. McMaster, and the last man standing, Jim Mattis. I want to back up to something that happened a few weeks before that announcement or those two announcements. President Trump, who is a man who as a candidate, despite his coarse language and bragging about future war crimes, didn't actually run on a very interventionist platform. I mean, he said that the Iraq war was the worst decision ever made. I mean, he supported it back then. But still, still, so did a lot of people. And he said the right things in 2016. He repeatedly over Twitter, usually his favorite form of contact, his favorite medium, he repeatedly urged President Obama to pull out of Afghanistan and repeatedly urged President Obama not to get involved in Syria. Okay. So in some ways, Trump, despite the harsh future war crimes rhetoric, was sort of anti-interventionist, at least compared to Jeb Bush or Hillary Clinton, okay? The mainstream folks. He shows flashes of this prudence every once in a while throughout the first two years of his administration. The best example is when about three weeks ago, he decides to tweet, I am positive none of his sober adult in the room grown-up advisors proofread this, or they would have nixed it. He said, U.S. defense spending is crazy, correct, and I'm opening talks with President Xi of China and President Putin of Russia to avoid a future arms race. Also the correct thing to think. (laughs) He tweets this out on like a Tuesday, and I read it, and I'm like, fuck. He's right. President Trump is right. And we need to encourage this behavior. We need to support him because he really seems to like being liked. So let's give him support. Well, he can't even make it through the weekend. By Sunday, he's reversed himself. Sunday of that week, he's reversed himself. And he's tweeted that actually... (laughs) We're not decreasing defense spending. We're going to ask for $750 billion in 2020, which is actually $17 billion more than the military asked for and $36 billion more than 2019's approved spending. What happened in the interim, right? Something must have happened between Tuesday and Sunday. Here's what happened. Everyone from generals on active duty to Republican and Democratic hawkish congressmen on the armed forces and foreign relations committees and secretary of defense jim mattis at a speaking engagement all publicly disavowed trump's tweet all publicly called for more defense spending and attacked trump for his very mild decrease of defense spending So Trump announces, no, 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 no. Not only was I wrong about everything I said, but we're actually going to increase. We're not even going to keep it the same, we're going to increase. Why do I bring this up before we talk about Syria and Afghanistan? Because I believe that story 
is really the story of the first two years of the Trump era, of the Trump administration. It's a president who isn't particularly interested in foreign policy and isn't particularly interested in endless wars being forced into continuing those wars, continuing the status quo, continuing the inertia of the terror wars. And who's doing the convincing? Well, it's the bipartisan beltway interventionist consensus. It's the retired generals. It's the long-serving senators on the relevant committees. It's the media punditry who are all pushing him in a forever war direction. And for two years, Donald Trump let the, quote, experts, let the, quote, generals, let the, quote, you know, grown-ups and adults in the room make his policy for him. And ultimately, it was failed policy. It was a continuation of failure. It was a continuation of the Bush-Obama forever war playbook. But this time, he does seem serious, and it remains to be seen, but he seems serious. He says, we're leaving Syria. He says, we're pulling half the troops out of Afghanistan. Surprise, surprise, Henry. All the same voices, left and right of center, are screaming their goddamn heads off that he's going to cause the next 9-11. And the arguments that are made for staying, and before I turn it, you know, after I turn it over to you, we can get into those. The arguments that these people, from Rachel Maddow on the left, to Fox and Friends on the right, the arguments that they're making, okay, and again, from Senator uh, Menendez on the left to Senator Lindsey Graham on the right, again, the arguments they're making are so intellectually shallow that it's absolutely shocking. And instead of encouraging good behavior on Trump's part, instead of giving credit where it's due, he's being attacked from all sides. And to me, that might be an indicator that he's doing something right. Because in this broken political system, when the mainstream left and the mainstream right are against you, you just might be on to something. Well, you're, def- you're definitely right about that. I <clears throat> The shitty thing to me has been watching the multitude of ways people, the people you just described, have injected the Kurds into their calculus and some of it is about protection most of it is they we want you to stay because we're going to protect the kurds but that's not the real reason i'm i'm just i'm just terrified of what happens next this doesn't end well um it was never going to end well to me the smartest thing that president trump could do is to be frank with the american people about that because they're going to use it because the, the punditry and the, and, and the Washington interventionist clique is going to use it against him when things go bad. My point is things were going to go bad anyway, and they're definitely going to go bad quick now. And the way this plays out on the ground in Syria and then soon in Afghanistan is going to be extraordinarily ugly. The best thing to do is to tell the American people that up front. Hey, guys, we're leaving because... We don't have a real legal justification to be there. Hey, guys, we're leaving because we can't win anyway. Hey, guys, we're leaving because it's all risk and no reward. And all that's going to happen is we're going to get stuck in a new quagmire in the middle of the Middle East. 
And by the way, when we leave, though, bad things are going to happen to the Kurds. When we leave, though, Assad is going to reinstitute his power eventually in the east of the country. The Turks are going to be invading the north. There's going to be a new civil war or there's going to be a continuation of the civil war and it's going to be ugly as fuck and thousands of people are going to die. But America, that's not our problem. We couldn't stop it anyway in the long term. And unless you're willing to sacrifice blood and treasure to stop it, unless your people's representatives in Congress are willing to vote for a real war to stop it, this was going to happen anyway. So there's no sense throwing good money at bad. That, to me, is cogent analysis. It's realpolitik. It's ugly. It doesn't sit well. Okay, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not a nice taste on the palate, but it's the reality. And um, you're right. This doesn't end well. It's going to be ugly. We should be terrified about what comes next. But I was more terrified about the prospect of perpetual occupation of eastern Syria, the outbreak of a new Islamo-nationalist insurgency against us, or accidental war starting with Russia. To me, those were greater threats and greater drains on American lives and American funds. So I support the president, which, hearing those words come out of my mouth, is very strange, listeners, but I support the president on this decision, and I'm not embarrassed to do so. Um, and shame on both, well, I expect it from the mainstream right, but shame on the mainstream left for shitting all over Trump for this tough and ultimately correct decision to leave Syria. Absolutely. No, I, I um, in, in the larger scheme of things, it is exactly what needs to happen. And you're right. There was no, there was no other outcome that was going to be possible given where people are sitting in the region. Um, oh, can I just jump in about the Kurds real quick? Cause I didn't address that. Sorry. You, you brought up this like faux sympathy suddenly for the Kurds, these tiny little violins playing sad songs for the Kurds on MSNBC and on Fox news and on the pages of the edit, the editorial pages of the mainstream papers. None of these assholes gave a shit about the Kurds six months ago. None of them gave a shit about them four years ago, and none of them gave a shit about them when we let them be slaughtered in 1988 and again in 1991. Spare me. Spare me the excuse that suddenly our intervention in eastern Syria was humanitarian in nature and meant to save the Kurds from the Turks and Assad. Spare me. First of all, you want to fight for the Kurds? Good. Put it to a vote. Put it to a vote in the U.S. Senate. Put it to a vote in the U.S. House. Declare war. Come up with the new AUMF. Have the American people, in the form of their representatives, because we are a republic, debate it. Show me how many congressmen. You, you find me 51 senators who, for all their bluster, for all their attacks on Trump, you Find me 51 senators who are willing to put their name to the paper and say I to a vote for war in Syria in order to protect the Kurds. You ain't going to find it. They're all fucking bark and no bite. They want to they want it both ways. They don't want to have to make the tough votes and the tough decisions and declare wars. But they also want to be able to attack the president. It's horrifying it's intellectually dishonest and it's morally corrupt 
It is they are bereft of ethics in the U.S. Senate and in the U.S. Congress. And I am not absolving the Democrats here, not by a long shot. Hey, everyone. I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. But truth be told, I need your help. No, I don't need you to move a couch or borrow a leaf blower. No, I need you to hit pause on your podcasting app right now and share this episode with somebody you know, somebody who you might think might be receptive to it. It could be a a friend or relative who's considering joining the military or a veteran you know who might be interested in in hearing a little more truth in their news about uh, military and veterans. We rely on you all to help us reach as many people as possible. So please hit that pause button right now and share this episode with somebody. Sharing all done? Good? Okay, good deal. I know Uncle Al will cuss a lot listening to the episode, but he'll appreciate it when the cursing stops. Now I want to mention something about Patreon. We are always in the market for more Patreon supporters. So if you get the chance, please come out and support us. You could support us for as little as a dollar a month. And what do you get for your dollar, you ask? Well, you get a one-minute drop on any topic you choose once a month. Just email us your question or comment, and we'll give it the old Henry Danny breakdown on air. Guaranteed to have 60 seconds of our time. We may spend more on it. Um, We prefer to do military and veteran topics, but whatever topic you think might be pertinent. And we may spend a whole bunch more time talking about it, depending on the topic. And for contributors, a bit north of a dollar a month, we have some bonus episodes, some essays of mine, and a few other things as well. We're still in the process of of building our rewards, so if you have any suggestions for Patreon rewards, please let me know. Now, back to the podcast. I'd like to take a moment here and thank by name our four honorary producers that are supporting us on Patreon. And they are Matthew Ho, Will Arends, Gage Counts, and Fahim Shirazi. Anyone who contributes $10 or more on Patreon each month will be listed as an honorary producer. To everyone else who contributes on Patreon, thank you so much as well. Your response has been really wonderful. But now we have uh, the... We have the added wrinkle of Jim Mattis suddenly resigning. And while neither you or I was happy he was here in the first place, as you mentioned, you know, he, he, I think I said it on Twitter, he's a warmonger, but he could be the sanest warmonger in the room, depending on what situation you're thinking of. So what do you think about Mattis resigning over this, Danny? I have harsh words for Mattis on this one. Is he still the Secretary of Defense right now? I don't know. I think Patrick Shanahan is acting secretary of defense now. Yeah. Forgive my ignorance. Um, I'm still on active duty until February 11th. So I've always got to be careful because Mattis is part of my chain of command and I'm going to, I'm going to continue to act as though he is just to be safe. Um, Cause I don't want anything to get in the way of my retirement. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't have a lot of respect for Mattis's decision to resign over this. I'm going to go ahead and just rant anyway. Fuck it. Um, Jim Mattis is a smart guy. They call him the warrior monk. 
He's got thousands of books. He reads them. He's never married. He literally lives and breathes military policy and military history. Smart as fuck. In the Army, in the Marine Corps, in the military, he's what passes for an intellectual. It's kind of sad. But he is. This man has served his entire adult life in, uh, in the military, in the service of the United States. He has watched a lot of awful things happen. He has watched his commanders and his president make a lot of awful decisions. But this, you're telling me this is what he's going to fall on his sword for? He's going to fall on his sword and dip out, right, and punch his ticket and, and go home. He's going to grab his ball and go home over not staying in Syria? A dubiously legal war that was unwinnable in the first place, full of risk without reward? That's it? Oh, it wasn't serving a president who called for bringing back medieval torture? That wasn't his red line? Oh, it wasn't 85,000 Yemeni children starving to death in a war that could only be continued with U.S. support? Oh, that wasn't a red line? Oh, and after Khashoggi was murdered and cut up with a bone saw, and after the Senate voted against the continuing the war in Yemen, oh, you mean Mattis, the guy who went in front of the Senate and said, no, don't vote against the warrants in Yemen. Don't vote against Saudi Arabia over the Khashoggi thing because they're too important. And oh, by the way, we're not sure that MBS was responsible, even though the CIA's own report said he was. The, you mean Mattis, the guy who both Republican and Democratic senators refer to as misleading in his testimony on Yemen and on Khashoggi? That guy? He decided that this was what he wanted to fall on his sword for? This? 85,000 starving children, 15,000 at least, they stopped counting, civilians killed in airstrikes when we were refueling the jets. That He was okay with all that. That was fine. He was going to continue to serve. He was going to continue to be an adult in the room, right? He was a grown-up. Trump has the audacity to pull out of an unwinnable war that we shouldn't have been in the first place that was only maybe legal. At best, he's taking his ball and he's going home. Oh, congratulations, General. What a hero. What a fucking hero. I do have some respect for Jim Mattis. That's why I'm so angry. I, I'm not afraid to say it. I mean, you're right. He's the sanest warmonger in the room sometimes. I just would like to see a few less warmongers in the room. But you're absolutely right. Look, if we got to have warmongers in the room, and fucking God knows we do. Right. No matter who's in charge, whether it's fucking Obama's warmongers or, you know, whether it's Obama's polite, well-dressed and well-spoken warmongers or, you know, President Trump's a little more coarse. That's the least the most I'm going to say while I'm on active duty warmongers. Uh, you know, I guess we'll take the sane ones like Jim Mattis. Right. Um, now, I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed in the secretary of defense, uh, not only because I disagree with him on Syria and Afghanistan policy, but because I, I, I just don't think. Choosing this to be a red line says a whole lot about your, um, I don't know, your values or your priorities to say, I don't know, maybe I'm already overstepping what I should say. So I'm going to, I'm going to cool it for a minute, let you talk. No, it's, it's, you know, for a, for a man with that long of a career and that much of a career entrenched in all the most horrible things that you and I talk about from the terror wars to, yeah, it, 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 and, and the thing is, is that it, 
at least along the Syrian border or like Al-Assad Air Base, what we were talking about earlier, there are still going to be plenty of U.S. assets available to do missions in Syria, um, you know, to include all the guys that were in President Trump's little video that he shared on Twitter. Um, but but my you know, I'm, I'm just thinking about, you know, the we've talked a lot about AFRICOM and the whole their whole lily pad you know, bases, little things here and there, keeping air assets off the continent in places like Germany, Italy, Spain. Um, how much is this really going to change what we end up doing in Syria proper? Um, and that would be the thing I would ask Jim Mattis. It's like, what else are you doing? I understand that John Bolton wants us to stay there, come hell or high water because of Iran. But again, what, what else is the point? So, yeah, it, 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 where, why the fuck is he dying on this hill? Why, like you said, after all the things, all the things in his career as, as a Marine Corps officer and his short career as a Secretary of Defense, it, 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 it I, I, I don't have enough energy to say the word fuck that many times. It's just, it's enraging, but it's also just fucking baffling. Yeah, so as, as a non-commissioned officer and, and, and for me as a commissioned officer, what were we taught? You follow and execute orders unless one of two things, unless the order is illegal or immoral, right? So he um, presumably is uh, very much inculcated in those values, very much believes in that structure. Um, so he, So by that logic, he should have followed his orders and done his best as Secretary of Defense to make the pullout happen in a safe and responsible manner within the guidelines of his president, right, of his commander. Um, that he chose not to makes us think that he thinks it was either illegal or immoral to pull the troops out of Syria. But that raises questions. Now, I think it's neither illegal nor immoral to pull troops out of Syria. I think it's very legal, quite moral, and the pragmatic thing to do. But if he is following that stricture of falling on his sword when he finds an order illegal or immoral, why didn't he resign over Yemen? Seems to me that fueling the jets, providing the intelligence, and selling the bombs that kill thousands and thousands of civilians and supporting the blockade that starved 85,000 children, to say nothing of their moms, dads, and grandfathers, that wasn't immoral, Secretary Mattis? You didn't think that was an immoral order? Wouldn't the true illegal order have been the decision? And Obama made it, by the way. Okay, so we have to be clear about that. But wouldn't the true illegal decision be putting American combat troops in Syria without a congressional authorization? Isn't that arguably the illegal part? Getting there and staying there in the first place? I mean, if you were going to resign over something being possibly illegal or at least dubiously legal... Wouldn't you have resigned because Trump didn't pull the troops out of Syria fast enough? You see, when you start breaking it down like that, it raises all kinds of questions. And it, and it really just pops that media narrative, okay? It just deflates the entire media narrative of, oh, courageous Jim Mattis is stepping down because that monster Trump is being irresponsible again, you know? And it's like that whole narrative – it lacks even the most basic insights of a sergeant and a goddamn major. 
who know that the only time you resign is one of those two reasons. It's it, it's it's shocking. It's disconcerting. I'm going to go a step further and say this is representative of the intellectual weakness and the character flaw of an entire generation of generals who were raised on perpetual war, who rose in the ranks by saying yes to unwinnable, unachievable missions, saying yes to probably illegal, largely immoral, definitely unwinnable wars throughout the greater Middle East. An entire generation of generals is complicit in this. This is representative of their failures. It's the failures of a generation of officers that we saw in the Vietnam War playing itself out again. I'm not afraid to say it. And um, yeah, I guess because I have some respect for Jim Mattis, I'm particularly upset. I have one thought, and it, it, it um, there was the news yesterday that Blackwater is going to have a, a full-page ad in the January-February issue of uh, Recoils, a, a popular gun magazine. And Twitter started talking about, you know, what, what if this sudden drop of troops in Afghanistan is a prelude to the Eric Prince send, what was it, I think 4,000 contractors and 2,000 special forces to do the work that currently about, what is it, about 14,000 guys in Afghanistan right now. Um, and granted, it's, it's, it's you know, it's kind of rumor mill, but again, we, we know that Trump is, does things unexpectedly, and depending on uh I I wouldn't see it out of the realm of possibility for Donald Trump to make a decision like that, um, and would you know? And would that, if that's a reality, would that be enough to say Jim Mattis made made that the incorporation of that made it that much more important? If that's possible, and again, I I don't know that it is. Yeah, I mean, it raises some interesting questions, and and the fact that Blackwater Blackwater is back from the dead is just, I mean, they never went away. They just rebranded two or three times. But the fact that they're back from the dead is uh, just an indicator of how far off the rails the American empire is at this point. Um, yeah, would the president consider the Eric Prince plan of privatization of the Afghan war, potentially privatization of you know even the Syrian war? Uh, would he seriously consider that? Well, I mean, he's a businessman. Um, he knows about subcontracting, doesn't he? Um, it, it worries me. It worries me that he would make that decision because as you and I both know, um, Arabs and Muslims and really anybody, Africans that we occupy, uh, any country, they don't really distinguish between Americans wearing camouflage and American soldiers, official soldiers wearing camouflage and like white dudes from America also wearing camouflage who just happen to be contractors. Like they look at us the same, right? We're both occupiers. We're both infidels. We're both foreigners, regardless. So if they're nationalists, I think we're occupiers and foreigners. If they're Islamists, then they think we're infidels, whatever, you know, they don't distinguish. So, I mean, you're not really pulling out if you let the con contractors pick up the slack. If anything, you're setting up an even worse scenario because those contractors are not even notionally, uh, 
sort of under the control of the Geneva Conventions to the extent that uh, we are as soldiers or to the UCMJ, as we've seen from the Blackwater guys who really did minimal prison time for a number of horrifying murders. So, yeah, I mean, you bring up an interesting point. Uh, I sure hope this doesn't uh, presage that eventual outcome, (laughs) because then we're going to have a whole lot of terrible podcast episodes to make just to talk about that. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's very much a nightmare because given given the the horror, the horrifying conditions on the ground for that many people to go in, that their chain of command is much more foggier. Their the results of the mission is is could be much more foggier. It's it's yeah, it's terrifying. Um, so I want to uh, I want to take some uh, some patron questions now, and one of them is is definitely fits in with what we've been talking about here and um uh hey chris and danny i'm surprised to hear that noam chomsky believes that the u.s should maintain a presence in syria to support the kurds do you think he has a point on any level i'll jump into that first i I love noam chomsky i think you do probably as well henry um i don't agree with him that we should stay in Syria. I don't agree because I don't believe that Kurdish autonomy or an autonomous Kurdish state is either a a vital U.S. national security interest, which I think we should only put our soldiers in harm's way and we should only kill others and die um, for vital national security interests. Okay, so that's the first thing. Um, and, And my second problem is I don't know that it's achievable in the first place. I don't know that we have the national will or the resources available to fight that out with Turkey, Assad, and then potentially the other two countries that have sizable Kurdish minorities, that being Iraq and Iran. Um, But in defense of Noam Chomsky, who I am very proud and fanboy giddy to say has actually read some of my pieces um that i've I've gotten positive confirmation of that um through a number of sources and uh, he mostly likes what i have to write so that makes me very proud because i am a fanboy uh funny my kids like a fanboy for like steph curry and lebron james but i'm such a dork that i'm a fanboy for like 95 year old intellectuals you know who teach at mit so I, i don't know what that says about me i'm way less cool than my 10 year old Okay, Um, as our uh, respective wardrobes would prove. But anyway, uh, I will say this in defense of Chomsky. He's been consistent in his call for humanitarian considerations regarding the Kurds for decades now. He has written extensively about Kissinger's sellout of the Kurds in the 1970s and how much of a disaster and a crime that was on the ha- on behalf of Washington. And he uh, called for Kurdish autonomy and Kurdish protection in the aftermath of the first Gulf War, a war that he actually opposed. Um, so my I respect Chomsky's position on the Kurds because that has been his motivation all along, humanitarian concern and genuine empathy for this people, this stateless people that have been sold out time and again since the end of World War I. Um, what bothers me about the 
voices screaming for us to say in Syria now is, like I said earlier, they never gave two shits about the Kurds. Now they're using the Kurds as an excuse to maintain forever war, maintain permanent military hegemony in the Middle East. And so I think that uh, Mr. Chomsky would agree with us that they are hypocrites and that he and I could debate, and I might lose because he's a rather eloquent guy, but I do think that I am correct in stating that Kurdish autonomy is neither something um, Americans should die for because it's not a vital enough national security interest, and two, that it might not be achievable um, in the first place. So I don't know. What do you think about that, Henry? That's a tough question. Anytime you put us on the opposite side of Chomsky, we're going we're gonna to backpedal <laughs> a little. Um, I, I definitely respect his position on protecting the Kurds and wanting them to have their own autonomy in that region. But knowing, you know, who they're surrounded by, knowing the many, many uh, violent obstacles they have to any kind of autonomy. Um, yeah, I would I would I would agree with him definitely to want to protect them. But at what cost to American forces and what cost to everyone on the sidelines of that, you know, who, the, you know, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, but all the, all the people that would be included in whatever conflict that is, and, and that can be looked at a, a, a bunch of different ways. But I, I, I know, I know for me, uh, and I kind of mentioned this earlier that it's, it's, uh, um, I take it very personally about wanting to give them some kind of protection and wishing that we would. But again, I, I step back and I say, at what cost? Absolutely. At what cost is the right? The, the, the question should always be one of risk and reward. Um, it should always be a cost benefit analysis when there's American blood and treasure, especially blood at stake. Um, and, and, I, and I am insecure in my position to the degree that I do care about the blood of Kurds, and I do think that all lives matter equally around the world. Um, I just – I hesitate to place America front and center in its responsibility to achieve those ends. If I really believed that a genocide of all the Syrian Kurds was – an impending possibility, I would maybe have a different position, but I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think Assad is going to reestablish sovereignty in the region, and I think he's going to be careful not to completely slaughter or alienate the Kurds because his own army is exhausted and he doesn't need the trouble and he doesn't need a long-term insurgency of very dedicated Kurds that we found out are pretty damn good fighters, right? Oh, God, yes. Um, Final point on this. Here's what I do think, and some people might call me naive. We need, the best we can hope for is to broker a deal with Assad and Putin and Erdogan to a certain extent. And that deal would have to go something like this. Um, we're going to pull out of eastern Syria, which we never really had any right to be in under international law in the first place. And we're going to accept the fact that you, Mr. Assad, with your Russian benefactors, are going to re-establish sovereignty in eastern and northeastern Syria. Um, but we're going to demand that as part of the condition for our withdrawal, that you allow some limited 
cultural and political autonomy to the Kurds and you don't slaughter them and you provide them the full citizenship of the other minorities in your country. Because one of the things people don't realize is that the Kurds alone among the many minorities living in Syria um, were denied citizenship and civil rights to a large extent prior to the 2011 civil war. So I think Assad is someone we can deal with. He might be a monster. He might be a strong man. And he might be a war. Well, he's definitely a war criminal. But I do think he is someone that can be dealt with. That's a, that's a dangerous thing to say. I'm putting myself out on a limb for future criticism if I turn out to be wrong. But I think he is someone eminently dealable with, just like Putin is. Um, he knows the limits of his own power. His goals are limited as well. He's not out for world domination. He's not even out for Middle East domination. He knows his limits. He knows his country's exhausted. And all he wants to do is, is, is maintain power and somehow try his best to piece the place back together. So I think he's, you can deal with him. And, uh, and I think we need to deal with him. Probably Putin needs to be involved. And quite frankly, the, I think the Kurds are better off under Assad than they are under Turkey. I think we're better off letting Assad reestablish basic sovereignty than allowing the Turks to invade and take over because the Turks have a much greater animus towards the Kurds and are much more likely to commit a massacre. So in this instance, and God forgive me for saying this, in this instance, um, I trust Bashar al-Assad more than I trust our NATO ally Turkey and President Erdogan of Turkey. Do you happen to know why it was that Kurds among, because like you said, there are a bunch of different religious minorities that live peacefully in Syria, um, Christians and Jews. And um, do, do you have any idea why that is? Yeah, there, there were a lot of reasons. Um, one of them was that for a long time, Turkey and Syria had a pretty strong relationship, uh, or at least Syria was really interested, like in the 1990s and 2000s, in forging a stronger relationship with Ankara, with Turkey. And um, the Turks are obsessed with the Kurdish problem, as they call it, and, and, wanted, and, yeah, and wanted to limit the political and civil rights of Kurds everywhere. Um, especially in Syria, because Syria borders so directly, North Syria borders so directly on southeastern Turkey, where the PKK insurgent, or as the Turks call them, terrorist group, actually the State Department calls them terrorists too, though I think it's debatable in some instances. Um, yeah, so part of it was to please the Turks. Um, part of it was fear of, of Kurdish autonomy, because there is a movement within the Kurds, a transnational movement, for a Kurdish state. And so to Assad, Kurdish separatism was a little bit more of a threat because it was tied to the Kurdish populations in the other three countries, Iraq, Iran, and Turkey, um, than say the Christians were. So the Turks are like nine or 10% of Syria, and they mostly live in a particular region, the north and the northeast, whereas the Christians are much more spread out and they're much more urban. And there's no real movement in the Middle East for Christian autonomy, right? There aren't like Christian militias in most countries, except for Lebanon, um, that are viable. So I, I think that's a large part of the reason why um, the Kurds seem like more of a threat. And it was also a way of placating the very, very, very obsessed Turks. Okay, that makes sense. All right, uh, next question here we got from uh, Josh Diamond. 
He said, my question is regarding rapid climate disruption. With the abyss we're falling into regarding ecological breakdown, what role do you see the vast U.S. military machine playing domestically and abroad in a period of increasing human-influenced disasters, a la Hurricanes Maria and Florence? Uh, just wait until the grocery store shelves start going bare as breadbasket droughts start to bite hard. Thanks. <laughs> no shit. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you want to start? Or do you want me to? Um. You know, I, I, uh, I've had this one for a bit, so I've, I've, I've had a little chance to think about it. And, um, you know, I, I think that right now, if I was the president, our, most of our military would get rededicated to doing ecological and environmental missions of many kinds. Some would certainly be humanitarian response. Um, you've mentioned before about how, uh, in 20 years, Bangladesh will be underwater, among many other places that are going to be flooded. Yeah, um, poor, poor brown places mostly. Yeah, um, but it's uh, you know what you know. Um, how are we? How are they going to protect New York City as sea levels continue to rise? You know, there's there's a lot of really hard questions that we're going to have to answer both about the folks abroad, but definitely here at home. And I think the military, the assets of the military and the personnel could be better used doing those kind of missions. Um, but the, the flip side of that is that the U.S. military is also the biggest polluter. So do we send the biggest polluters in the world to fight pollution? It, 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 I'm not saying, you know, you, would, you couldn't do it for certain instances, but it is a, a worthy thing to consider. Go ahead, Danny. Yeah, well, look, uh, he, he mentioned, what, what did he call it? Climate. What was the phrase he used? It was uh, ecological breakdown. Okay, ecological breakdown. I would say, you know, because, I mean, he means climate change. I, I would say, did you, do you mean extreme weather? And I would say that facetiously because for oh, years uh, now. Uh, ra rapid climate disruption. He means rapid that. climate disruption, yeah. I, I, what I would say to uh, Josh, right, is like, what I would say is, um, uh, oh, don't you mean extreme weather? Because, you know, in the Trump administration, we're not allowed to use the word climate change in our Pentagon reports anymore. Um, for years now. Um, a decade even, um, the Pentagon has been writing reports about the, um, the viability and the truthfulness of climate change, okay, the existence of climate change. The Pentagon has long accepted man-made climate change as a problem. Um, they have long recognized it as a security threat, and they've long recognized that the military will play some role in either responding to those threats mostly and heading off those threats to some extent. Yet, when the climate denying president of the United States, and again, I'm, I'm not calling him names, but truth, he is a climate change denier, says many times that it's a hoax, um, Chinese hoax, which is the best kind of hoax I hear. Um, he is a climate denier and he's in, in the Oval Office. So he has ordered Pentagon reports to remove the word climate change and to substitute euphemisms like extreme weather. Um, what does that tell us? It tells us, Josh, I'm not optimistic about the military pivoting towards the very real national security, existential national security danger of climate change. Um, I think it's much more likely we can sit, we continue to chase our own tail in the greater Middle East and that we continue to prepare for wars that aren't coming and shouldn't come in China and Russia. And that instead we're going to ignore climate change. I have a two-year-old son. He's 23 months old uh, in three days. 
Um, he plays this game and it's so fun. Um, it's kind of like a form of, uh, 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 of mental hide and seek. See, when he doesn't like something I'm telling him, what he'll do is he'll cover his eyes or he'll close his eyes because he's convinced that if he closes his eyes, I can't see him. And it's, it's brilliant. And I think it's a really, really good metaphor for how uh, the 50% of America that denies climate change deals with the impending outcomes of such and the existing outcomes of such. It's like if we close our eyes and use a different word and say, no, 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 we don't say climate change, la, 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 la. Okay, if we do that long enough, then we'll, you know, climate change won't see us, but it will. And, um, and like my almost two-year-old, um, we are, of course, mistaken. And, uh, um, and, and also about my two-year-old, it's his generation that is going to live through the worst of this, right? And uh, see their opportunities diminished, um, see humanitarian ecological disasters increase to a level that you and I can hardly imagine. And um, everyone's going to be screaming for the military to intervene when shit goes bad. They are, whether we're the biggest polluter or not. Um, when manpower is needed to respond to the worst hurricane in history or when manpower is needed to build a fucking wall of sand to stave off temporarily the next flood in New York City, it'll be the military. It will be. That's what the, the only, it's the only public institution that people trust, right? It's the only public institution that you can say, execute X tomorrow, and they'll do it without asking any questions, right? They're the only ones you could pull away from their families indefinitely, just on the word of the president, right? So yeah, I mean, um, I am a big proponent of retooling the US economy in a green direction. Uh, Ocasio-Cortez has recently been calling for a Green New Deal. Everyone, people on the right hate her. You notice that? They hate her so yep. much. Um, it's because they're scared of her, by the yep. way. She's the, she's the future, and that terrifies them. She's the future in so many ways. I mean, not only in her democratic socialist politics, but in her brown skin and her youth, right? Yep. Um, and, and in her poverty, essentially, because she was a bartender like two years ago. Um, or less. So, I mean, she's terrifying to them. She's everything they are scared of. But anyway, you know, I mean, I think we need a Green New Deal economically. I think we need to retool um, our military priorities to prepare for the impending gloom and doom of climate change. And uh, yeah, so I, I appreciate the question. I appreciate Josh bringing us back to this because this is, and I would argue that there are only two existential threats to U.S. security. And you will never hear the word Al-Qaeda or Islam mentioned once in this next sentence. The only two impending existential threats to U.S. security are one, nuclear war, probably unnecessarily, unnecessary, perhaps mistaken nuclear war, and climate change. Okay, those are the only two existential threats. Now, if the military is truly in existence in order to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States, if the military is truly only to be used in defense of truly existential, truly serious national security threats, then the military should be worried about avoiding nuclear war, deterring nuclear war, and fighting climate change. And all the other institutions of the government have a much bigger role to play than the military in that. Okay, and the military is not a panacea. It cannot be used to fix every problem. The military is a, a broadsword, not a scabbard, and the, and the military is a hammer. And um, not every problem is necessarily a nail. Well, it's uh, it's funny that you mentioned about uh, the threat of nuclear weapons. 
as uh, Josh Diamond had a, a second question here, and it's about that. Um, how concerned are you guys regarding accidental firings and mistaken threats or just nuclear war in general, even as a trillion dollar upgrade of the nuclear program is on the table? After reading Daniel Ellsberg's The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner, I'm quite aware of the pure luck of circumstance and human decision making to date such that we haven't obliterated ourselves yet. Wow. Yeah. I'm very worried about nuclear war. Um, I'm very worried about accidental nuclear disasters or unnecessary nuclear wars being started and therefore finished because um, there will only be one nuclear war probably and it'll be the last war ever fought if it's a serious one. Um, I'm worried about a lot of things. Um, I'm worried about an American national security system. It's a systemic issue here, okay? Um, structural issue where one man who doesn't even need to get – this isn't about Trump, by the way – where one man who need, doesn't even need to get the majority of the popular vote has unilateral authority to wage nuclear Armageddon. And none of us have to be consulted, right? Um, Secretary of Defense doesn't even really have to be consulted. Doesn't have to be. Um, Congress, psh, Congress will be they'll they'll be dead before they know the the war started, right? Um, they'll be they'll still be on their fucking robocalls dialing for dollars when the nuclear yeah. when the nuclear bomb hits DC. They will they will they'll be out raising money. They'll be at fucking one thousand dollar plate fundraisers. When they get a fucking phone call on their cell and their chief of staff's like, oh, by the way, yeah, we're all dead in like eight minutes. Okay, that's how it'll work. They'll be the last ones to know. Okay, m m fucking my dad watching Fox News will know as soon as his representative comes. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm really worried about that. Um, I'm particularly, of course, worried about North Korea. Um, I'm worried about Israel, quite frankly. Um, I'm going to get people angry again. Here, here, here's a, a new Dannyism. I'm more worried about nuclear weapons in the hands of Israel, which they've had since 1969 illegally, by the way, and secretly, uh, than I am about the potential, albeit unlikely, um, development of nuclear weapons in Iran. Ah, <gasps> he said he, he said he likes Iran. He said he loves the Ayatollahs. No, I didn't say that. Okay, um, what I'm telling you is, Israel is. Israel's government, which is increasingly right-wing and increasingly ultra-Orthodox religious, is scaring me. Um, that state is coming apart. Um, I have always mistrusted many of their foreign policy decisions, but they're off the rails now with their almost indicted Prime Minister Netanyahu, who is to the left of the rest of his cabinet and who is to the left of his party, even though he's a goddamn lunatic. Um, I'm scared that if Israel perceives um, a threat to really any part of its current system, any part of its sovereignty, or if they perceive any possibility that Iran might be building a bomb, that they wouldn't hesitate, if necessary, to use nuclear weapons. And um, so they scare me. They scare me. And finally, Pakistan scares me. Um, Pakistan and Israel have a surprising amount in common. Pakistan's much worse, but 
they have a surprising amount in common, don't they? Um, states that were religious from their very founding, but largely secular among the political classes for the first few decades of their existence. Uh, do you know that they were founded basically in the same year, right? Pakistan is 1947 and Israel's 1948. I, I could write a book about this, by the way. That, that should be my magnum opus. Israel is the new Pakistan. That'll be the title. Um, Orange is the new black. Great show. Israel is the new Pakistan. And they're both founded around the same time. They're both founded as religious entities, right? Because Pakistan's going to be the Muslim India. Um, but they're largely ruled by secular sort of responsible adults in the room for the first few decades of their existence. And they've both increasingly gotten more religious, okay? More fundamentalist, more ultra-Orthodox, whether it's ultra-Orthodox Zionist Jew or ultra-fundamentalist Islamist. Um, their governments have begun to um, act as almost uh, theocracies, okay? And been particularly chauvinistic in their foreign policies. And their militaries have been infused with ever more religious, ever more radically religious officers. That goes for the IDF in Israel and for the Pakistani army and especially the ISI, the intelligence service in Pakistan. Um, another thing they both have in common is they both have nuclear weapons. They both developed them illegally and they both did so uh, with the essential, you know, look away from the United States, if not encouragement, right? If Iran even thinks about developing a nuclear bomb, we'll go to war, right? We, basically, we've said we'll go to war. We'll invade. Um, Israel lied to us, to our faces, developed nuclear weapons in contravention of international law in 1969, and America stayed silent. Pakistan did the same in the 90s, and we didn't stay silent, but some limited sanctions, but we continued to support them. We continued to use them for um, funding and arming our various proxies in Afghanistan and balancing against other regional uh, adversaries. So yeah, okay, so uh, that's a long way of saying um, terrified of nuclear war, um, terrified of the system where one man is in charge of a nuclear arsenal that can destroy the world several times over, which is an American systemic problem, and specifically terrified of Israel and Pakistan, and want the listeners to consider the similarities, the fucking striking, terrifying similarities between Pakistan and Israel. Yeah, I, I don't think I can add anything to that. That's just, we hope for the best, and... and Maybe that's something to pursue politically in, in terms of our own country is a an actual law regarding the chain of command when it comes to nuclear launch um, and making making sure that it involves multiple people. I mean, something we, we just we right like you said right now, it's all about who's behind the desk and we know who's behind the fucking desk right now. But could we pursue something that could, you know, like the war powers resolution, but in a nuclear kind of situation. I'm not sure if that makes sense or not, but it, it does. Oh, two final points. Um, world almost ended twice during the cold war. Actually it almost ended more than twice, but two times it didn't when it came really close, 1962 and 1983. I was born in 1983. Um, uh, both times a Russian Colonel or a Russian Naval officer with the equivalent rank of Lieutenant Colonel, um, save the world, actually. Um, all those evil Russians, right? 
two of the most responsible decisions made in the history of planet Earth and the human race were made by Russian bureaucrats, right? Russian mid-level officers. Uh, 1962, an executive officer of the submarine in the Mediterranean um, ignored its um, incorrect belief that they'd been ordered to fire nuclear weapons on the United States. Executive officer of a submarine in a very Crimson Tide-esque scenario, for those of you who like 90s Denzel Washington Gene Hackman movies, um, a Russian lieutenant colonel or whatever the fuck, lieutenant commander, commander, I don't know what they call them in the Russian Navy, whatever, um, stopped it. Okay, And then in 1983, during the Able Archer exercises in Europe, which were NATO exercises designed to prepare for all-out war in Western Europe to include limited nuclear war, those exercises, which were so realistic that they convinced the Russians that America was planning for a nuclear first strike, those exercises are going on. And then sure enough, the lieutenant colonel in the Russian army, who is monitoring, um, like, I guess, a radar system, gets a false positive that numerous U.S. nuclear missiles are heading for Russia. And instead of following protocol and alerting the chain of command, which would have then released an equal number of Soviet missiles. He decides to wait because he can't believe America would really do this. He thinks it must be a mistake. He's not ready to end the world on his decision, on his reading of the situation. Waits against orders, against protocol, just long enough to find out that it was a glitch. That Russian lieutenant colonel saved the world. And he was thanked by his superiors with a reprimand and the essential end of his career for not following protocol. So final answer to the second question of Josh is, um, I'm terrified of the American system of utilizing nuclear power. I'm terrified of accidental nuclear warfare. I'm specifically terrified of it, terrified of Israel and Pakistan being irresponsible. And just for fun, I want to in implore Americans to remember that we've come pretty close to the world ending twice and on at least two of those occasions that are public it was a Russian mid-level bureaucrat who saved the world the end <laughs> okay we have uh, one last question today from Henry Zamoda there's been a lot of chatter on the possibility of MBS being forced to abdicate from power I believe that's only possible if Saudi Arabia falls short of its economic goals and the standard of living lowers for the average Saudi. If MBS is ever ousted, what does a new Saudi regime look like? Is it possible we see a situation like the Iranian Revolution where the religious authorities completely dominate Saudi policy? Hmm. You want to first crack at that? Uh, I don't know. A lot of uh, so much of, of things in the Middle East is about appearance. And so if anyone were to do something, they would have to consider how it would look from the outside. And MBS has become something of a celebrity in our uh, among our faux resistance culture because people don't really look into exactly how horrifying they are. Um, you know, I don't know what I don't know what that would look like. Um, but again, as far as, as far as I can tell, even with ordering Jamal Khashoggi's death, as horrifying as it was, it was somehow in the interests of Saudi Arabia. And so unless there's a sizable portion that is willing to fight against that and understanding how the religious authorities act in that country, how hard that would be, 
I would I would doubt that anybody they would have any actual chance of ousting him. Yeah, this is a tough question, but it actually um, for the um, viewer, you know, for the listener who who brought the question in, it's a really astute question um, that demonstrates a pretty strong knowledge of Saudi Arabia's internal dynamics, and so I applaud you for that. Um, I don't pretend to be an expert on Saudi Arabia, but like everything else, I dabble um, because I am a super dork, and if I could somehow monetize all the knowledge in my head, I would be very rich. Instead, I will die poor, but I don't think MBS is going anywhere, but I agree that if the the, the Saudi royal family um, falls, okay, if the Al-Sad dynasty falls, which is what I think it would take for MBS to go. I, I could be wrong. The family could oust them. Don't think it's likely. But it, I do agree that if the Al-Sad family falls, if the dynasty falls, it will probably be due to economic collapse. Um, why do I say that? Because Saudi Arabia exists only through a Faustian bargain, okay? Uh, a, a very fascinating alliance between Wahhabi clerics, call it official ISIS. Seriously, Wahhabi Islamist clerics and the Al Saud royal family. They made an alliance back in the 1700s. They renegotiated the alliance in the 1920s in the aftermath of World War I. And the deal goes like this You, the kings, the Al Sauds, provide stability and security at home and economic wealth to such an extent that you provide almost perfect social welfare programs, right? So you subsidize the people of Saudi Arabia with your wealth. If you do that, if you do that and provide security, we will give you the religious backing and the religious legitimacy that you need in order to rule the people of Arabia. That was the deal, right? And it's worked. So long as oil has been the number one right mover of the global economy, okay, and so long as oil prices have remained high enough, and Saudi Arabia has maintained enough of a portion of the global oil market to continue that. But what we're seeing now is a changing dynamic eventually where fossil fuels aren't what they used to be, and where even already, due to expansion in places like the United States through fracking. Um, global oil prices are, are dropping. And Saudi Arabia, which is a very wealthy country, is actually, I mean, it is blowing through its reserves as we speak, okay? And um, it will run out of reserves. It, it will run out of its many, many billions, not trillions of dollars. It, it will happen, especially when they fight expensive wars that will never be won, like in Yemen. Um, so I do agree that... it. it if the system falls, it'll be because of economics, because that's what drives um, large global internal uprisings usually, okay? Um, now, the second part of that question was also really astute. He says, uh, if it happens, could we see an Iranian-style revolution where the theocrats take over? And I think the answer to that is yes. Um, this is where it gets complicated. MBS is a monster. I fucking hate the guy and wish he were gone and wish he never were born. But what comes after MBS is not necessarily better, okay? Um, if the Al-Sad dynasty falls, it is 
possible that an increasingly radicalized Islamist group um, actually does have some sort of internal revolution and takes power. Um, like, a, like now we're talking like Wahhabi ISIS in Arabia. That that that's possible, okay? And it's 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 scary, it's scary and it's dangerous. So, you know, the Saudi alliance with America, that ultimate, the ultimate Faustian bargain of fucking all time between FDR, who I otherwise respect, and uh, King um, of Saudi Arabia back in 1945. That bargain, that Faustian bargain was like way more nefarious than we even give it credit for, okay? Because we've empowered these like royal monsters who, look, some of them are religious, but some of them fucking been in Vegas spending money and on hookers and blow. Some of them been on their yachts in the south of France paying prostitutes, right? Like a lot of these saudi royals aren't so islamist in their personal life okay a lot of them just like money and power but don't be mistaken there is an undercurrent shit it's a it's not even an undercurrent of massive extreme islamism among the saudi people okay among the people of arabia so um what comes after MBS is not likely to be liberal democracy. Yay, we're going to they everyone wants to be an American deep down. If you just unzip every Arabian deep down, they're just an American waiting to get out. Fuck that. What comes after MBS? It probably is worse, at least in the short term. Wow, that was a lot of history that I did not know. I need to go to the library. Yeah, if you ever really want to have no social life, just pick up my reading list and um, you'll be you'll be set, dude. If you want to like, if you want to like, not have successful relationships with women, just start reading the way I do. Uh, yeah, I got I got to do books on tape these days, but it's uh, yeah, it's so much it can't ever end the amount of history to to connect everything, you know. So uh, we're finished up with patron questions. I had uh, one last little thing that I wanted to talk about before the end of the season. And it was uh, a comment that was made, a, uh, a fellow that follows the um, podcast on Facebook, Bob Patterson, um, shared an article that I had shared on the page from the LA Times by Andrew Basevich about the war in Afghanistan isn't a, quote, stalemate the U.S. has lost. And Bob has the caption, and it reads, stalemate is a nice way of saying failure, which, Bob, I agree with you. Then there was a couple uh, just kind of question comments. And then there was this one, and I'm, I'm not going to share the, the gentleman's name, but I, I read this and it made me so angry, but it's so, um, it fits the dynamic of the apathy and apologies that Americans give for the military. Bob, you know, I love you, man. But please be more considerate when posting things like this. Maybe the political objectives weren't met, or maybe they were, but to label the mission a failure, whether meaning to or not, only stings the elected officials for a nanosecond in time, while it labels our troops for a lifetime. This was the exact thing that ostracized the Vietnam vets. Unless that was your intent, please refrain and tell others to refrain from targeting the mission which labels the veterans. Instead, if you want to attack politicians, 
name them, and the specific policy first in the post, and then end with a message of support for the troops. Oh, boy. Danny, I, I don't know if I've ever heard a more sycophantic piece of bullshit in my entire life. Oh, God. I, I'm almost upset that we even have to deal with this. Uh, <laughs> but we do. Because it's it's a it's a serious line of thinking among a significant segment of the population. Um, the military needs honesty and it deserves it. The military requires accountability and responsibility for the missions that fails at. Saying that the war in Afghanistan is lost is a factual statement. Okay, it's not it's not an emotional statement. It's not. It's not an indictment of people for joining the military. It's not an indictment of the service and sacrifice of those people. It's a reality, and it's one that Afghan war veterans are going to have to get themselves pretty fucking used to. All right? And I include myself in that. Um, if we're not willing to grapple with the truths, the hard truths of political and military failure in a place like Afghanistan, then we're going to repeat that shit. Now, <laughs> pessimistic Danny thinks we're going to repeat it anyway. And pessimistic Danny thinks that this kind of thinking, whatever this guy's name is, res responding to Bob, um, no matter how much you and I yell about this, no matter how many books we read, no matter how many podcasts we do, his way of thinking, according to pessimist Danny, is probably going to win out, just like it did after Vietnam. And we're going to be told that to decry the mission is also to decry the troops. And that, therefore, it's not okay to dissent. And that's how they're going to shut us down. That's how you squelch meaningful criticism. That's how you squelch dissent. You go back to the troops and you say, oh, you can't, you can't say anything bad about the mission. You might, make this, you might make the troops sad. Motherfucker, we've been adults, right? Like, suddenly we, we, we can't hurt the feelings of the veterans? who were willing to walk on roads that might be filled with bombs, who engaged in firefights, who lost their limbs. Look, we're big boys and we're big girls, and we're going to have to deal with the fact that we lost the war in Afghanistan. We didn't lose it ourselves. We were given an unwinnable mission, and we made some mistakes along the way, no doubt. But the fact that we didn't accomplish our mission is not something we should hide. It's something that we should absolutely put light on that fact so that we can avoid it the next time. That's not an oversimplification. It's, it's a reality. Look. If we don't learn something from the, the Afghan war, if we don't learn – look, every war is different. But if we don't learn to look for the signs of a quagmire in the making, God help us. God help us in the next decade of the forever war. So there's, <clears throat> there's one more element of this that I haven't included yet, and it was mainly because I forgot it. I, I didn't plan to include it later in the discussion. But this guy, the, the gentleman who left this comment – is a veteran. He served in the Navy as a submarine officer in, I think, the 80s and 90s. And that was one of the biggest reasons why I wanted us to talk about it is that among the veteran community, we do bludgeon ourselves with whose, whose narrative is right. And he represents a big portion of that. People who, because most, most people who've ever served in the military, Danny, they haven't fought in combat. 
Absolutely. It, but prior to the, the war on terror, our wars didn't last long enough that it would have made any sense. And even these days, we send so few people, how would we have any more? But it's about those kind of veterans, the non-combat guys, who have a sense of what was gone through, but they didn't go through it themselves. And so they take that protect is, protection that they want to give to other veterans, and they bludgeon people like us with it. And that is that is the most severe sin I see here. Yeah, I sense a degree of insecurity in that comment. Totally agree. I do. I mean, I don't know the man. I only know the background you gave me, but um, I sense a level of defensiveness and uh, ultimately insecurity um, in the statement. I think that a truly mature viewpoint would be willing to grapple with hard truths and inconvenient facts. And I think that that's what we try to do every day, imperfectly though we may, um, imperfectly informed though we may be. I think that um, to our credit at least, tooting our horn here for a second, we attempt to grapple with the uncomfortable truths and move forward with a clear view of reality as best that it can be um, said to exist. Absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, go, oh, go ahead, Danny. Yeah, I was going to say, man, what an episode. <laughs> yeah, no. You know, been, last, it's, it's... La last of the year, uh, but we certainly got a lot out there said a lot and i'll say it again the worse things are for the world the better they are for forgers on a hill um if we didn't have any material and we went off the air for a few months because we didn't have any material that would mean things were going pretty damn good i'd be happy yeah. for the world um nothing better summarizes 2018 than the madness of Danny? Yeah, did you lose me? I, I did for just a second. Sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know what that was about. I, I an incoming call came in. I declined it right away, but I think maybe oh. that's what the problem was. But I, I my thought was done anyway. Okay. Um. Yeah. No. I. Uh, I'm thank I'm thankful for you and I getting to do this because, in addition to trying to inform people, you know that the the process and the learning and the history, uh, there was so much about our country that I didn't know before this last year. And the saddest part of that is that most of it, I would say I was ashamed to learn. But like you just mentioned, that is the hard choice. That is the choice of we're going to look at this with a clear lens. Try not to, we're not establishing blame, but just figure out what the basic facts are. Um, but no, I, uh, I, you know, for everybody listening, I hope that um, Fortress on a Hill has been a, a, a benefit to you guys. Um, I know that I've, I've learned a, a shit ton by doing it, and I plan to keep doing it for as long as we possibly can. And um, please, you know, I, I love hearing from you guys. If you have questions, comments, concerns, bitches, gripes, moans, complaints, as an old first sergeant of mine used to say, anything that you want to share. And, and please... You know, we're not we're not afraid to to hear outside opinions. There are times where 
I know for me that I, I, it depends on who you pick up. It depends on who you were reading as to how their slant of history went. And so if it's a subject I haven't come across yet, you know, I, I may have some new things to learn about it. Absolutely. I mean, you saw the way we answered the Chomsky question today. Um, we're okay with critical opinions. Um, we like it. We like to think that we're open-minded enough to deal with it. Um, you know, I spent the holiday with my father, and if I can get through political conversations with his Trump-supporting Fox News uh, binging uh, self, then, then I think I can handle criticism from anybody because uh, that's hard sometimes, <laughs> especially when you love somebody. Um, I'm thankful for our listeners, um, our supporters, especially our Patreon uh, members. I hope that um, you recommend the show to uh, friends and, and fellow podcast enthusiasts. And uh, we're going to try to do an even better job next year. We're going to try to have um, ever more interesting topics, ever more organization, ever more contributors potentially, and and definitely more great interviews. So. Thanks for everything you guys do. Uh, this is impossible without you. Yes, thank, thank you. Thank you to everybody who listens. Um, hope you guys have a, a good new year, and uh, we'll be back in January. Yeah, we'll be back in January, uh, assuming the Earth is still inhabitable. Thanks. Take care, guys. Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also on Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at FortressOnAHill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Patreon, Spotify, you name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a contributor at Patreon.com. If you're not into doing a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple of bucks on PayPal. The link for that is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget that. We'll see you next time. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not be.